0: let's pray. Father we thank you for your amazing love for us and we pray that you will speak to each of us individually uniquely by your Holy Spirit. We ask these things for the name of Jesus and for your kingdom. Amen. Amen. Well it's really great to be here. Thank you for your warm welcome. You know we live in very strange times And the events of this week are historic. In 20 or 30 years' time, people will ask you about them. And they will say, tell me what it was like. Your grandchildren will ask you these things. They'll say, "Uh, you you were around at that time. What happened? How did it happen? How was it that the whole banking world lost the plot? How was it? that we started to slide into what looked like um, a, uh, a depression like the 1930s, which incidentally was so profound that totalitarian states swept across the whole of Europe. And Within three or four years, we had, we had, we had dictators uh, in power in Italy, in Spain, in Germany, and it laid the roots for the Second World War. That is how profound these things are. And we live right in the middle of these times. Right now, as we speak, a lot in intellectual combat, fighting for the very lives of the future of various nations, are some of the heads of state of some of the largest economies in the world. They know they have till Tuesday morning. And America starts to trade on Tuesday morning. And they know then that the American market could go into another free fall and lose 20% of its value. Does it matter? I promise you it does. What it means is that even banks not only stop lending to banks, it means that people like General Electric or General Motors can't borrow the money which they need. It could mean huge millions and millions of jobs. And I don't just mean in America, I mean in the UK. It could mean the bankruptcy of Iceland. Yes, bankruptcy of entire nations. And of course it will be the poorest of the poor that suffer, as usual. the knock-on effect, believe me, in some of the places like Burundi or Zimbabwe or uh, places like that, it might be knock-on because there's less money to help bail out such countries. It might be knock-on because there are less, less pay packets out of which people are willing to give donations to charities. It might be because there's less money available to buy their products. But the knock-on is there. So we live in very uncertain times, And this weekend is critical in the history of our world. Um, and I promise you, PhD theses will be written about the decisions that were made this weekend for the next thousand years until the Lord comes again. Maybe that sounds an exaggeration, but I promise you, it's not. And uh, at such times of uncertainty, we're reminded of the words of Paul, which is that Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, the, the writer in Hebrews. Uh, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And, you know, we live in crazy times. And if there's one word that will explain the future to you more than any other, uh, I'll, I'll tell you what it is. And it's nothing to do with technology or banking. It's nothing to do with, um, with uh, you know, consumers or, or politicians or anything like that. There's one word which will drive the future more than anything else from the human point of view. And let me tell you a story to describe what it is and then what it means for us as individuals in the church in our calling to follow Christ. What does it mean? Uh, I I was uh, lecturing in New York recently, and uh, I was a little late for a meeting, in fact I was very late, it was about 8 o'clock, I was due to be speaking downstairs at 8 o'clock, at 8.30, and uh, needed to set up as well, and there I am, on the 4,322 stories up, Um, uh, yes you know the hotel I mean, And, uh, uh, and there's only about half a lift and it's broken, or it doesn't seem to come so there we are standing there and there's uh, already 12 people standing around the lift I know that when it comes I'm probably not even going to get into this one and there I am sweating and I haven't got a phone number to SMS them downstairs and I really don't know what to do in that moment I confess to you I was actually tempted to do something totally crazy what would I do? Uh, Well, press the fire alarm, that that would have (laughs) taught everything. (laughs) Well, I thought about it long and hard, and I confess to you, at that moment, I I was tempted to do something totally mad. I knew it was mad, I knew that everyone would laugh at me for doing it, but I just knew I just had to do it. I was tempted to press that lift button more than once. (laughs) Okay, confession time. I know that you would never do such a crazy thing. You would never ever think of it because, I mean, even Bill Gates himself knows you cannot get a lift button to come more quickly. That lift there will not come more quickly because you punched the button ten times. You just get ticked off by the treasure for vandalism. So put your hands up if you have been tempted at times. I know that you've never done it, but you might have been tempted just for a moment to press that lift button again. I hammered that lift button. (laughs) I, I told this story to 950 airline pilots in Atlanta recently. I'm very interested in airline pilots and how they think. It worries me. <laughs> you see, I fly in up to four countries a week, so it's really important to me. The plane gets up, comes down. So I asked these airline pilots. I said, and by the way, um, put your hands up if you, you know, press the button. They all put their button, their hands up. They all press buttons. That led me to think about another thing which I've always been thinking about, which is, I I said, I was worried about the planes, really, but never, I I had another question I wanted to ask. Put your hands up if you talk to the lift. Come on, baby, it's time to... 95% of airline pilots in America talk to their lifts to make them come, I can tell you. That's the truth. That worried me even more and led me to the final question, which of course is on the tip of your tongue as well. Put your hands up if you talk to your plane. (laughs) Ninety-five percent of airline pilots in America talk to their planes when they go up through turbulence and coming down the land. Now, I know you're laughing, but please, pay some respect. You will press the lift buttons more than once yourselves. What it shows us, my friends, is that the most important thing to do with the future, if you want to predict the future, the most important thing to understand is the future is not about logical, rational people. The future is not about politicians that make objective decisions. The future is not about any of these things. It's not even about global warming science. The future is about emotion. It's about how people feel. It's about the passions they have. It's about what they want out of life. It's about how they see themselves. That's the problem with the banks. You know, in the olden days, people would have a run on the bank. So the consumers would feel very emotional about the bank. They think, I'm not, I'm not leaving my life savings of 5,000 pounds in there. Another day, they go down to Barclays Bank and they take out 5,000 pounds. And when 5 million people do that, of course, Barclays Bank goes bankrupt overnight. Why? Because they can't give them the money. Why could not they give them the money? Because there's other members of the church that they gave your money to. They, they took your 5,000 pounds and lent it to um, Thomas over here to buy a house on a 20-year mortgage, okay? And they were kind of assuming that there would always be someone with £5,000 to put in the bank, take it out, put it in, take it out, put it in, take it out. So they'd always be able to lend you the money. But if everybody wants their money back, what happens to your loan? Well, they can't give it back. So that's what happens when you have a run on a bank. But what's happening at the moment, we have banks doing runs on banks. So banks are saying, I want all my money back from you. So HSBC is saying, I want my, your money back from Barclays Bank, thank you very much. Or, or uh, ABN is says, I want my money back from all the Iceland banks now. And of course they can't give it, and so the whole thing starts to seize up. And when you have lots of trust, uh, and then you, it's a very emotional thing, and the market goes into free fall And what's happening right now. But emotion is also to do with purpose. And we see a crisis of purpose in the workplace at the moment in Britain. In a recent survey, um, it showed that uh, 60% of 35 to 45-year-olds want to leave business jobs. They just want to get out. They don't see really any point in what they're doing. If you look at the generation younger than that, you find that 60% of all those from the age of 25 to 35 say 25 years old. They say they're having a midlife crisis already. They are genetically different from the younger generation. Why are they having a midlife crisis? Because of the crisis of purpose. In the olden days, they were happy to just go to work, make a little bit of money. Our oldest son is an example, when he, first, when, uh, when he got his first job, he was just six weeks, seven weeks into a fantastic job at Bristol where he had uh, done university training with a Google-like company, growing very fast, in IT, being paid well, really exciting. I phone him up, I say, how are you? He says, OK. Ah. what do you mean, OK? <laughs> How's the job going? It's all right. Uh, it, I, he pauses, he says, I'm thinking of downsizing and getting a life. 16 weeks, first pay packet. Now, he is typical of his generation, okay? And I I teach at many business schools, and I can tell you that those doing MBA programs are the same. They are different. They do not want to get to be on the board of RBS or Credit Suisse in three weeks flat. They want to have a life, and they want to have a purpose. 60% of 25 to 35-year-olds cannot see any reason whatsoever why they should bother to get out of bed in the morning and go to work. You say, that doesn't surprise me. I've always suspected that. The reason reason is they don't see the point. They don't see a purpose in what they are doing. To just make profit for my boss. To just make more Gidgets or Wismos or something to sell on the market. So there's a crisis of purpose. And it's even more so at times of, of, of general chaos when our world is worrying about how sustainable our world is anyway in terms of things like global warming, using up the resources of the planet and the rest. And these are very big issues in people's personal lives and now in governments and in corporations, which is, for us as Christians, it's encouraging, actually, that people are thinking about these things. I... Um, I trained as a doctor looking after those dying of cancer. And I learned from that something extremely important, which is that when you are confronted by death and dying, in fact, we drove past St. Joseph's Hospice just on the way here, uh, where I trained uh, about 22 years ago, uh, 25 years ago. Uh, uh, 26 years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe 27 years ago. (laughs) It's amazing how the years pass, isn't it? It's like children, people say, how old are your children? I have no idea, it keeps changing. But some time ago, I trained at St. Christopher's, at St. Joseph's Hospice and at St. Christopher's Hospice, and I learned something. When you're close to people who are towards the end of life, it makes you realize how important life is and how urgent every day is. I know from my own dad, when my dad was diagnosed with brain cancer, and six weeks later he was dead, there was a sense in which he was more intensely alive for the last six weeks of his life than at any other point I've ever known him. Does that make sense to you? Put your hands up if you know what I'm talking about. If you've been close to someone in that situation. And you know what? We became more intensely alive as well. All of us around him became more intensely alive, living for the moment. All of us became acutely aware of the value of every hour of every day. And one of the things that I find upsetting, and I find this in Christians as well, we should be, um, of all people, able to face these things and to focus on them, but I find it upsetting that time and time again, it takes a terminal diagnosis, it takes a piece of catastrophic bad news to cause someone to become intensely alive. You understand what I'm saying here? Isn't it tragic? I mean, actually, I would say my dad lived a full life and he lived it well. And actually, one of his, his sort of, his mottos in life was take every opportunity while it's there. You never know, it may not come again. So he, I think, taught me right from the very earliest days to take a value in every day. But my goodness me, having been exposed to so many people with cancer at an advanced age and then with AIDS, it's made me acutely aware of this ticking clock and the urgency of it. Today is only today. It passes soon. You are only here once. I hope you know why you're here. (laughs) I hope you know why it is that the Lord didn't take you last night. You say, well, I'm here for my family or something like that. Well, okay, that's not quite enough, you know. Um, Paul said, for me to live is Christ, to die is gain. Put your hands up if you said that to your friends in the last six months. Oh, why is that? Is it that you don't agree with Paul? Is it that you think his gospel is different from yours? Actually, the gospel of Paul is the gospel of Jesus. Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. So where is your treasure? Paul's treasure was where? Uh, We read about it in Philippians chapter 3. He said, not that I have already obtained all this, verse 12, just listen to it, don't look at it, or have already been made perfect. He says, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. He said, forgetting what is behind, I strain what which lies ahead. I press on towards the goal to win what? The prize which, for which God has called me heavenwards in Christ. Paul was already there. He says, my life is being poured out on the altar. He says, I, my, I will not always be with you. And he said, for me to live, yes, if there's another day, I will live it. I will live it fully, enthusiastically, I will live it for Jesus. But you need to know where I'm going. And I am going to a better place. I'm going to be with the Lord in glory. Hmm. Now that is a very different kind of message than the ones that we Christians often land up living in, which is come to Jesus and he will sort out your exam results. (laughs) Or help you through your depression. Or help you to get another job. Actually, I don't see that. I can't find verses about that. I can find all kinds of verses about how God will and the rest, but I also find verses uh, about uh, that Jesus himself says. In Luke 9, verse 23, what does he say? He says, if you want to be a disciple of mine, and follow me, take up your cross every day and follow me. If you care for your own safety, you are lost. But if a man will allow, or a woman will allow themselves to be lost for my sake, they will find their true self. He says, what does the world gain? Uh, what does the man gain if he wins the whole world but loses his soul? Um, and, uh, and that's about purpose, it's about destiny, it's about knowing who you are. Paul knew who he was, Paul knew why it was, uh, well actually maybe he didn't understand. Why was it that Paul got put in prison and the key thrown away? Hmm? Have you thought about that? Did he just say, oh well it's in God's mysterious purpose to make me suffer like this, but I will carry on praying for my release? He did. He didn't understand fully the reason why God did it, which was? to make him the first virtual apostle, to make him the first digital time walk apostle of Jesus Christ. God knew that by putting him in prison, he, Paul would be forced to convert all of his passion, faith, vision, doctrine and energy into, dig, into words, into the digital medium, which would be spread all over the world by the internet over 2,000 years later. Isn't that extraordinary? Isn't that amazing? We would not have any of this stuff were it not for the fact that God removed the key from Paul's prison and threw it away for quite a few years. God could have allowed Paul out of prison. But God knew in his purpose that it was important that Paul was locked up to make him explode with uh, with passion and... frustration and energy, and to deliver stuff the only way he could, which is through the written uh, written script of a friend who is taking dictation. And those captured pieces of gold dust have propelled us into our own eternity. And they're being read by us here today. Amazing. Now what was Paul's mission? If you ask Paul what was his mission... Why was he going to stay on earth? I'll tell you why. Because he knew that every hour he had still on earth was an hour he had left to influence someone. To win the argument with a church member and another church member who are having a crazy disagreement about nothing in particular, nothing that really mattered in the eternal purpose of the God. To try and persuade a Christian to release and forget and to forgive. Um, to try and challenge um, a, a church which is becoming a little bit complex. To go and be an influence themselves in every part of their society and world. Taking influence was fundamental to the message of Paul. And in fact, if you look at, if you look at just about every part of, if you look at the, 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 the prophets, what was their role? To take influence. Again, in words. If you look at the ministry of Jesus, why did he do miracles? Of course, it was to authenticate his authority. Why did he do that? So that his influence would be greater, so that people would listen to the message. That was why his Heavenly Father gave him the capacity to heal. So we live in a world where where your time is running out. The only thing I can be absolutely sure of about your future is that physically it's nearly over. Why do I say that? Because the Bible tells you that. What is man? Like grass in the field, here today and gone tomorrow, but God's eternity is forever. So you are here just for a flash of eternity, and those days are soon passing. Put your hands up if you notice that conquer time has come around a little earlier this year than the year before. (laughs) It's the same with Christmas. Isn't it extraordinary? Every year it's like God has nicked a whole week out out of the year compared to the year previously. Life feels like it's speeding up. That's because we're getting older. Um, and actually, it's a reminder. And this crazy time-space body, this, this, um, this arthritic creaking whatever it is, and you might be only 12 or you might be 120, it doesn't really matter. But the fact is that today really matters. And it's easy to live in tomorrow. It's easy to fantasize and say, oh, tomorrow I'll get this job. Tomorrow I'll sort it out. But today is the day. Uh, some, uh, I, you know, something I find astonishing is how many Christians come up to me to talk about their jobs. And they say, uh, they're wanting advice about this, that, and the other. And I'm always delighted to, <laughs> to share whatever I can in terms of bits and pieces of wisdom. And people email me and they phone up and want to meet me and things like that. And, uh, and it, the conversations often go the same way. And I say, And they start by saying, I really believe that God has got something better for me. I say, oh, it's fantastic, I'm sure he has. Um, Yes, I really believe, and then they describe something about what it is. And I say, that's great. So what are you doing about it? Oh, well, I'm I'm praying about it at the moment. I say, that's great. So God's told you that he wants you to work with children. Fantastic. Do you have any qualifications with working with children? Oh, no, I don't actually. Um, have, you, have you done any voluntary work with children's 80s or anything like that? Uh, um, well, I was thinking about it. Uh, have you applied for any jobs with children? Well, uh, um, I was just waiting for the Lord to show me the right moment. <laughs> it might be something someone saying, I'm really fed up with my boss. My boss is a load of rubbish. I don't know why I stay there. I said, I don't know why you stay there either. <laughs> Especially if God told you to move. So presumably you've done a CV, have you? This is my first question, I say. Have, you've done your CV, you've done your biography. And they, go, and they, they, sort of, they face forth a bit. Oh, well, I've been thinking about that. I'm sort of working on it at the moment. I say, how long have you been working on it? Oh, well, two or three years. <laughs> we have this fantastical notion that somehow God will spoon feed us for our every personal women need. Actually, God gave us intelligence. He gave us a brain. You use it at work. Why don't you use it in your personal life? Some, sorry, I don't say that like that. Just, <laughs> it's what I think. I'm confiding in you. Actually, it gets worse. Then people say, "Oh well, I wouldn't want to push myself forward." I say, "You what? Um, well, you know, I wouldn't want to think my, my boss was you know, being uh, I was being pushy." See, I'm sorry. Well, you know, I find it very hard to sell myself because it's not very Christian to sell myself. So I, I basically, um, you know, just, just, just serve him meekly and mildly. I'm glad you're serving him, but why aren't you telling him the good news about all the wonderful things you're doing? Why don't you tell him the good news about all this spare capacity, the fact that you've got one and a half days a week of unused time which could be used to haul huge amounts of weight and burden off his shoulders if only he knew. So, well, I, I find it very hard to do that kind of thing. I said, give me a break. God said, let your light shine. Why? So that the, the, the others may give glory to your Father in heaven. Let's be the best good news that you can be. And so often, 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 I find people trapped in all kinds of situations of their own making, and they're stuck, and they're blaming God, and wondering what's happening, and actually missing out on opportunities to take influence. Another person came to me and said, he said, I've been offered a choice, difficult choice, he said. I can carry on what I'm doing, what I'm doing, but I have been offered a promotion. But the promotion might mean that I'm too busy to lead the home group. I said, well, tell me about the promotion. What is it? Well, he said, at the moment, I'm managing a team of about 500 people. But if I'm promoted, I'll be managing a team of 22,000 as head of human resources, so I'll be responsible for their terms of reference, whether they can do flexible working or not, the family policies we have, uh, discrimination policies, e- uh, equal opportunities, I'll be responsible for gender issues and, uh, and, and and ethnicity issues, I'll be responsible for the very culture of the organisation. I said, and and, and you actually think you're turning it down, because you think that it'd be more important, well, God has told me, you know, it's very important for me to lead the home group. I said, are you really sure about this? Are you really sure? <laughs> Life's too short, my friends, to do something that someone else could do. Mm-hmm, isn't it? You can only live once. And my question to him is, how many other Christians do you know that could take this job tomorrow? He said, well, I'm the only Christian who's being thought about. I said, my friend, you need to go and think about this very hard. I happen to think that there are all kinds of other people who would probably do a wonderful job leading your home group. And if there aren't, there's something wrong with your leadership. Hmm? Isn't that right? Because why, who have you been investing in and not investing in for the last five to ten years? Now, I'm simplifying a little bit. But, um, but you know what? I think we need to understand our calling seriously. Which is, we're not just... You know, God didn't come to build our home groups. Did you know that? And God Sorry, God didn't send Jesus to build your home groups. God sent Jesus to bring in his kingdom, which is something totally different. God sent Jesus to transform every office, school, neighborhood and street in the whole of Ipswich and the surrounding area going up to Cambridge and back down to London. Isn't that right? Right from the ministry of this church. Um, And so may God deliver us from our parochialism and from our ghetto mentality and understand that we are called to make a difference and today is the day. And this is your day. You know, life's too short. To, uh, to be hung up on what someone did to you in the past. Life is too short to allow someone to enslave you by controlling your memories because of some awful thing they did to you that you find it hard to forgive them for. Every day you find it hard to forgive them is the day that person continues to manipulate your imagination, your emotions and your passions. Life is too short, my friends. We are commanded to release these things. We forgive. Why? Because God has forgiven us. And it's hard to forgive and it's hard to love, but Jesus taught us to love not just our friends, even the enemy does that. Do you know there is nothing distinctive about this church whatsoever uh, uh, because of your love for each other, alone. It's your love for those that you hate that makes you different, Jesus said, love is when you love your enemies. So love is when you love someone who doesn't love you any longer in your marriage. Love is someone when you go again to the person who's abusing you at work and you continue to bless them and look for their success. That is love. Love is going back to people who you think have abused you uh, mentally, psychologically and continuing to pray for them. And you say, well, I don't think I can do this love.'" Jesus didn't ask us to do it on our own, but he did say that this is the way of the kingdom. And he did say that when he went to his Father, he would send us another, the Holy Spirit, to help us to live in these ways. Life is too short, and we're called to focus on what matters. And you know what? Um, So often we miss this. It is the most important rule of life. It's the most important, in terms of human life, in terms of getting... Things done in terms of impact, influence, in terms of really transforming Ipswich, in terms of changing the whole uh, vision of the church around to where God wants it to be from the future. I don't know what God has for you, but it's incredibly exciting what God is doing here. All the facilities he's given you there, question marks about the hall at the back. I'm just amazed at the energy, the dynamism, the potential to transform all of the areas that you're involved in. And by the way, church is more than about community in the old sense. Put your hands up if you work in London. Put your hands up if you work in Cambridge or as far away as that. If you travel an hour to work, um, you know what? We are involved as salt and light in a far wider ministry than you would ever imagine. And it's easy to think, oh, we'll, we'll do our youth event on, you know, we'll go for lunch today in a particular place. We'll invite our friends and neighbours. Your neighbours, my friends, are those of you who work with. they they're the people at the Mothers and Toddlers group. They're the people who are in the same council, who themselves travel from a completely different direction another hour and a half. So for you, many, for many of you, your greatest ministry is investing and witnessing to people who may be one or two or three hours away from your home. That is part of the ministry of your church. And you know what? Focus is everything. Jesus knew this. It's the old 80-20 rule. Do you know the 80-20 rule? It's the biggest lesson. You learnt it with this building. Uh, you learn it every day, and it's the most important rule of business. It's absolutely vital to understand in the church. Uh, what is the 80-20 rule? It's a mathematical principle that about 80% of everything happens from about 20%. Oh, it's a funny old rule. It's very frustrating, but it's true. If you're McDonald's, 80% of your hamburgers are sold to 20% of the people who live on the estates in Ipswich. That's the truth. If you're building a church, 80% of the finance comes from a fifth of the members. Mm-hmm. If you're planning something like lunchtime today, 80% of the work on a committee of 10 is done by two. Put your hands up if you know that's true. Actually, uh, let me tell you something extraordinary. Jesus knew this principle as well. 80% of the impact of what we do tends to come from only a tiny amount of what we do. Jesus knew that. Uh, Jesus was teaching to 3,000, but how many did he actually send out? 72 um, of the 72, how many did he actually choose? Twelve. Actually, by the way, even Jesus found one of them and let him down, so don't go for a team than twelve if you're running anything. Of the twelve, how many did he really focus on a disciple? I mean, he discipled all those twelve, but there were three who were really special. He spent ages with them. Who were they? Peter, James, and John. Three out of twelve. You see where I'm going? And out of the twelve, hmm, there was one who he spent an enormous amount of time with, who, who waffles on in his gospel, but is full of the genetic code of Jesus. Who's that? John. So we see the 80-20 with something else too. How long would Jesus' physical life have been if it wasn't cruelly terminated? 65, 70 years? Who knows? How long did his actual physical ministry? Three! He had how many years of adult life? about 13 to 15. How many years did he actually spend doing anything worthwhile? <laughs> I'm exaggerating, forgive me if you think that's blasphemy. I am just wanting to understand what I'm saying. He spent most of the time being a carpenter without a single recorded word about his end of life. Why? What a waste. No, it's not a waste. It's the fact that in those three years, his Heavenly Father was able to accomplish almost all that could possibly be needed. In fact, everything that was needed. I, I, actually, I say, well, Lord, I would love a, a fifth gospel, a sixth gospel. I really would like an eighth gospel. Wouldn't you? There were so words, few words written about Jesus. I would have loved some more. Why couldn't they have lived until 35? What I'm saying is focus. Jesus was focused. He stayed, he didn't heal everyone in the town. He would heal a few as tokens of his authority and he moved on. Why? Because he knew that he'd already accomplished in one night flat 80% of all the impact that would ever be achieved with that town or city just about and there was another town to get to. He was very focused and we are not. And in our own lives if we are going to seize the day, if we're going to understand the urgency of the day, we need to be asking God to show us each day what is our 80-20 and they can be the smallest things in the world and sometimes they are the most significant. Let me give you an example. Tanya is a member of our church. Tanya has a ministry of encouragement. She writes notes to anyone and everyone. They run their birthday, they pass their driving test. I don't know, she writes notes. And these notes are everywhere. You go to someone's house and there they are. You can tell Tanya's notes from her handwriting. How do I know? Because, of course, the person says, I go to their home. What's your name? Margaret, Margaret says, I'm just going to make a cup of coffee. I'll be back in a moment. And I see these notes on the mantelpiece. You know, some of them looking a bit dusty. And what's the first thing I do as soon as she goes to have coffee? Ah, put your hands up if you've read someone else's note. Ha ha ha. Confession time. What a load of nosy Parkers you are. Now tell me this. So you read the note from Tanya to our uh, our friend here, and it says something I don't know, it was written, let's say it turns out to be a year and a half old. And it's something about, thank you for your hospitality of the night and your words of encouragement, your prophetic insight into my situation, which I found truly astonishing and helpful. God has given you a special ministry and I really want to encourage you in, because I know that you pray hard for each guest before they come to your house. You have been such a blessing for me and I will always remember what you said. Ah. Now what's, what's the effect on my spirit as I read that note? Am I depressed? Huh, she never sends me one like that. Or am I in, enriched and encouraged, what do you think? Enriched, encouraged, my heart is warmed, isn't it? Crazy. Now, by the way, um, these notes can last a very long time. Put your hands up if on if, 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 if a strange occasion, like moving house or doing a spring clear-out, a little note is flattered to the ground that you haven't seen for a decade, and you went and opened it and read it again. Put your hands up if you found an old note like that. We are sad people. How long does it take Tani to write a note? Two minutes. How long to post it? Two minutes. This is a very unfair work. Two minutes work, and she is influencing people for ten whole years. Not just you, but anyone who gets contaminated by the words that she's written. Extraordinary, isn't it, the power of that? Sometimes I say to people, and what do you think your ministry is? Oh, I believe that my ministry is to publicly speak to thousands of people. I say, great. Uh, but, and then they can miss, and it's a future ministry, it's a phantasmagorical notion that may or may not happen. But the fact is that they are missing, right in front of their very eyes, the fact that their main ministry might just be writing notes like Tanya is. I said to Tanya, you need to write some more notes. She looks at me like I'm from the planet Zod. She says, Patrick, don't be ridiculous. Anybody can write a note. I said, but your notes are special. She said, do you know how long your notes are living in people's lives? A decade. More. It takes you three minutes to write a note. The person thinks about it all day. Let me give you another example. It's her 80-20. How long do you spend writing notes, Tony? He says, oh, ten minutes a week. I said, why didn't you make it half an hour? <laughs> Just think what could happen. Um, put your hands up if you received an encouraging SMS message at some point. And my, I'm by this person who is martyred in your church, martyred in China who is a member of this church. And people are martyred every day and they live in fear and trembling of their lives, especially in places like Arissa, where churches are being regularly firebombed and people are being hacked to bits. So tell me this, if you're a Christian in such a territory and you're an Indian pastor, and perhaps you preached in this church eight years ago, but you haven't had any contact with you for the last eight years, what's your name? Imagine what his reaction would be if on his mobile phone you sent him a text message saying Dear Samuel I am praying for you right now. You are in my thoughts and prayers. I am fasting and praying for you and your church today. May God keep you safe. What do you think his Samuel's reaction would be? No. Huh, my friend. More than that. He's going to be in tears. He's going to tell all his he's going to be showing his message. I don't even know this man. I don't e- hardly remember her speaking to him. He must have been in the congregation eight years ago in that church. But he sent me this message of hope. And I thank God for him. I see tears. Don't you see tears? How long do you think you'll keep that message in his phone? <laughs> Absolutely, ages. Absolutely ages. And how many nanoseconds did it take you to send it? Huh. My friends, let's understand the power that you have. You are here for a purpose. You are men and women of destiny. Let's make every day count, and let's think about the things that really matter. And I'll tell you this, you don't know what your 80, 20 is. Tanya had no idea. We need each other. We're part of the body of Christ. We take, um, you know, it might be that you're fantastic at hospitality. I don't know. It might be a fantastic ministry. But you think it's just anybody. anybody can sling a meal together for 18 people. But when you do it, you just do it. It's a fantastic thing. And the way you welcome people and how they feel loved and appreciated. And So we need others around us to show us what our ministries are. Who are you going to mentor and coach and disciple? Who are you going to release and equip? Who are you going to look after? Who are you going to send a birthday card or an SMS to? Or some small gift of kindness? Who are you going to make a meal for who's sick? Who are you going to do those small things for which actually turn to be the oil, which enables the whole world to turn. And why do we do it? We We do these things because of the love of Jesus, to see God's kingdom come, to see his glory shine, and to see his name be known. In the name of Jesus. Amen.